So we come to Canto 34, the last of the Inferno, and it opens with a mocking tone, perhaps suitable for these dark regions, where Virgil quotes the famous medieval hymn Vexilla Regis, which translates as the banner, the banners of the king come forth, but he adds a twist to it here, he adds the word inferno, so it's the banners of the king of hell come forth. Now this is striking, um, it has a slightly blasphemous feel, but I think that its intent is to anticipate how the banners, the wings, the great body of Lucifer doesn't move at all. It's not coming forth. It's mocking Satan. But it's also striking that Virgil quotes a Christian hymn and you might say knows it well enough to give it this twist, to understand the mocking tone. And I just think this is another one of those intimations that this is as much about Virgil's salvation as it is about Dante's sight. It's left hanging, it's left unresolved, but it's striking that at the very end of the Inferno, Dante gives us this hint. Virgil next invites Dante to look, to see what this final round of Cocytus might contain, and it takes Dante time to see which of course is about his mind, his perception, his spiritual nous adjusting as much as just straightforwardly his eyes. And in a similar echo to what's happened previously, at first he missees, and down here he thinks that he sees windmills emerging out of a foggy mist. Now I think it's very interesting that he sees windmills. Um, vertical windmills such as we imagine them now and which are going to look a bit like Satan I think were relatively new features of the medieval landscape and my sense is that they must have unsettled as um, enabled people to feel empowered um, you know windmills are using the wind which in the ancient mind, in the medieval mind, um, links with spirit, links with breath, um, this material and spiritual continuum um, that the medieval perception understood. Windmills, as it were, use this wind spirit and through machination, through machines, through gear, uh, gears and cogs, turn it into the kind of power that can then, in the mercantile spirit that was very much seizing Dante's time, convert that into material wealth. And you'll recall, we've already thought about some of the suspicions of that, some of the risks of that, that material wealth can become a barrier between us and divine wealth, rather than being a channel or a set of symbols when people pursue material wealth for its own ends. 
you know, windmills have been around for quite a long time. There, there is records of certainly horizontal windmills in the ancient Greek world. But people didn't think to industrialise them, didn't think to turn them into this power to generate material gain. Um, and I think it's because back then the uncoupling of wind and spirit hadn't begun to occur. It didn't become possible to imagine that you might just use the wind regardless of the spiritual significance of that until its beginning in Dante's time. So it's not surprising that down in this deep region of hell he's sensing that there's something infernal unfolding on the earth too, at least risking cutting human beings off from the divine, which of course is what has happened to Lucifer. Dante says that he feels these gusts of wind um, that are actually coming from Lucifer's wings being generated by this infernal machine of Satan. Um, they're a kind of anti-spirit, an anti-spiration, an anti-love. They suck and draw everything out of life. Um, they're a kind of emptiness um, and it intimidates Dante. And it says that he stood behind Virgil and remains behind Virgil for the time being. You know, even Virgil's shade um, has more life and vitality in it um, and can protect Dante from the emptiness that he's now going to have to see, going to have to look at face to face. And then Dante, the poet, tells us that they've entered the fourth region of Cocytus without naming it as the fourth, um, but it's the region of Judeca. And um, this is a region where souls don't speak. Uh, Dante, the pilgrim, says he saw them completely buried in the ice now. You remember that some previously had, had their heads above the ice looking forward, some looking down, some looking up. Well, now the heads <clears throat> are buried completely in the ice. And Dante just sees contorted forms you know, bent up, stretched out, um, like twigs and like branches in the ice. Um, these are souls, in a way, who aren't just um, the animated dead, as we'd encountered um, in Ptolemaeo. They're now almost like shells of life itself. It's almost like just the imprint of their former vitality remains in the frozen landscape of Cocytus in this deepest part now. And as they move deeper into this place, Virgil says, look, it's time for you to see. It's time for me to step aside. You must summon all your courage to understand this place, this final region of hell. Virgil says, it's time for you to see the creature who was once so beautiful, Lucifer, the creature of light, now fallen to the deepest part of the cosmos. Virgil presents him by saying, echo dite, and he says, behold this, this being this old word for Satan. And the echo dite, of course, echoes the phrase, and behold the man, um, which Pilate had used to present Jesus to the crowd. Um, can you see it saying, can you understand? Do you even know what you're looking at? This is the challenge that 
that Virgil puts to Dante now. And Dante, the poet, addresses us, the readers, too, in another moment where he breaks the fourth wall and says, Reader, use all your imagination to try to grapple with what I was grappling with then. He says, I was neither alive, but nor was I dead. I was suspended in some infernal, transitional, intermediate state that was neither one thing nor the other. That is the profundity of this emptiness down here. He says there's words that can't really, no words that can really describe it. Again, he's kind of grappling to hold on to being, to hold on to reality, even as he feels the fall into non-being, into non-reality. That is what we're invited to try to imagine. Dante, the poet, helps us by describing in quite a lot of detail the body of Satan, a bit like he describes in quite a lot of detail the bodies of the giants. Um, it's something, as it were, for our, our sensory minds to contemplate in a way to allow our imagination, our spiritual minds, to roam more freely beneath the images and see what this a devilish symbol might channel, might communicate to us. The size of Lucifer particularly is emphasised. Um, Dante says that in proportional terms, as he was to the giants, so the giants are now to Satan, which puts Satan as about a thousand foot tall above the ice, a thousand foot into the ice. So he's like a tall skyscraper looming over this dark region. It's a spiritual massiveness, of course, too, a kind of empty space. And in a passing thought, Dante describes what happened to Lucifer. It says that he raised his brow in scorn against his maker. In that moment, he cut himself off from his wellspring, from his source, from the divine life. And how great was the fall, because Lucifer was the most beautiful of the creatures. He was, in a way, the closest to God, who reflected the divine beauty all the more. And that, in a way, is the heart of the message of this final canto, the, the deepest, I think, spiritual learning from it. That the huge risk, the huge peril of the spiritual ascent is that as we rise, as we echo, as we reflect, as we grow more in beauty, as we become more divine in our knowledge and sight and our desire, so too increases the risk that that might turn in the moment and become pride, the overweening desire to own and possess it for ourselves, unless we're constantly emptying ourselves out in the process to take in the more and the more and the more. So that is why Dante, I think, must come to this absolute pit of descent. There's no further place down to go. He must see it all because it's only when he fully understands the complete risk of pride embodied in Lucifer now before him, that he can hold in mind that great danger as things begin to level out for him and as the descent turns into an ascent. In a way, the further up he rises, the more he has to remember Lucifer, the creature of sight and light in order that he too 
doesn't make the fall that Lucifer made and how terrible and great was that fall as we're now seeing. So as Dante the Pilgrim takes these things in, the poet describes for us more about Lucifer's appearance. Um, it's said that he has three faces, one yellow, one black, one red. They're at right angles to each other. Um, Dante says he's amazed, a sort of horrible amazement that Lucifer even down here um, hideously echoes something of the Trinitarian life of God. Um, the three um, faces in heaven um, that are constantly breathing life into each other, are sharing love and vitality, down here have become a frozen, uncommunicating too kind of devilishness. Um, it's very striking that Lucifer doesn't speak in all the horror. Um, he is immobile. Um, Dante sees that all he's doing is chewing on three souls, one in each mouth. And that takes us perhaps to another level of symbolism, another aspect that this view might channel and communicate to us. Um, Dante names these three sinners as Judas and Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus, and also as Brutus and Cassius, who were betrayers of Julius Caesar. Said that Judas is in the mouth that faces forward, he's in head first, um, the red face, um, and he's being uh, raked as well down his back. Cassius and Brutus are in the side faces, um, they're in the mouths of Satan feet first, Cassius in the yellow face, Brutus in the black face. And inevitably there's been a lot of speculation about what this symbolism means. Um, I think it's it's good to enjoy the speculation but not tie it down too literally, a bit like the contrapassos, to use the parallels as a kind of springboard to allow the symbol to communicate more and more and more to you. Um, you know, so you might think that Judas, Cassius and Brutus are devilish uh, echoes of Mary, Lucia and Beatrice, the three heavenly ladies. You know, if Mary said yes to God, Judas said no. If Lucia was the light of the divine, uh, maybe um, Brutus in the black face is the darkness of Satan. Um, if Beatrice is love, um, then perhaps Cassius in the yellow face um, is hatred. Um, you can play with these ideas down here, and um, but do so, I think, to let um, the, all the ways in which um, what can become ascent might turn into dissent, um, uh, all the ways that can happen speak to you. Um, I mean, just to develop that, think more about Judas. You know, Judas is so fascinating because to be the great friend of Jesus that he clearly was, the one who could approach Jesus and kiss him um, in that intimate way, he too, I think, must have been a great-souled person. You know, friendship is the most conscious of loves. Um, it's not full of the blind passion of erotic desire. Um, you want your friends to know you even as you know them, fully themselves, and enjoy life together by being fully yourself and even more so in the company of the friend. So this is the great fall of Judas, um, that though he had the potential 
um, to enjoy the delights of heaven with his friends, with Jesus. In the moment of his turning, he fell to this great depth. He fell now into Satan. Um, this is you know, what the symbolism of Judas being here is trying to show us. You might say that the symbol of Judas is showing us that there's huge risk when, say, we put causes above persons. Um, you know, the cause that perhaps Judas, Judas thought Jesus stood for, maybe overthrowing the Romans, maybe reforming religion. Judas put that cause above the person of Jesus by betraying him. So this is saying we must always, always, always put the person first um, above, say, political passion. Another way of thinking about it, so alongside this prioritising of expediency over love, might be to say that Judas hadn't realised that dying to oneself actually is the way. Um, he thought in too worldly terms that the accretion of power, of change, maybe good things, maybe wanting to right justices in this world, there comes a point when the spiritual path says, no, one must take the risk of dying to self because there are greater things that might come into this world than are readily accessible in this world. You know, that there's more to life than meets the eye. And so the place of sacrifice, of letting go, um, always has a kind of priority in the spiritual life, even as in this world one tries to fight for justice. Remember, remember I uh, thought earlier of Aristotle's phrase that justice is a kind of failed friendship, um, that we turn to justice, turn to law, turn to rights, when love and life and vitality have ceased to flow between us. Um, well, you might say that Judas is the figure down here who'd lost sight of love and friendship and flow and thought it was all about justice and rights um, and fighting. Um, and so great was his fall precisely because, in a way, his hopes were good. And I think you can say that Lucifer is the heavenly equivalent of Judas. Um, Dante describes him beating this empty wind across Cocytus with six wings. So that means that he was a seraph in heaven. He was closest to God. He too was a great spirit that could see God face to face. And now he's feeding on enmity, not love. He's feeding literally on the betrayers, Judas, Cassius and Brutus. That's how precipitous the fall can be. You know, the, the, the sense of eating as well reminds Christian, the Christian imagination that um, the last thing that Judas ate was the bread of the Last Supper. Um, when Jesus hands him the bread and says that his spirit was troubled, one of you, one of the disciples is going to betray him. And in John's Gospel, it says that even as Judas ate the bread, Satan entered into him. Even as Judas was eating the body of Christ, you might say no closer to God um, as a physical person, as a living person, than in that moment. Even in that moment, Satan was able to enter into him. Again, the way that things can flip around in the spiritual path. This is what Dante is asking us now to contemplate, to really let sink into our minds and souls and imagination. You know, we've been on this long, long journey all the way down through hell. And we've 
followed him right to the bottom of the descent. And it's to take all that in, to gather all that understanding, both about the risks uh, facing us in the higher reaches of hell, um, the things that can merely sort of put us off course, um, right down to now the things that can become so trapping um, that they cut out the light and that they cause the freezing over. Um, and in a way, the move to the position even beyond death, the kind of complete emptiness that he's seeing now. But if it flips one way, it's also the case that things can turn about the other way. And Virgil says to Dante now, we have seen it all. It's time to move on from this place. And it begins the remarkable turnaround, even from this deep and darkest moment that starts to happen. It cuts both ways. If fall is possible in any moment, particularly the higher that you ascend, so too is metanoia, is turnaround, is ascent possible in any moment even in this darkest moment now. And in some ways, I think it's not just about seeing and understanding in order that one's knowledge and desire and sight uh, can have clear view of all the risks. Um, in some ways, it's only when we fully see death um, that the fullest response and turnabout can happen. Um, you know, when we are faced with all the uncertainties of life. It's in that moment you might say that the certainties become clearer. Um, when we realise that we're going to die, it's when we have to let go of what we feel we control, we possess, what's in our power. And it's in that moment of letting go that the life that's bigger than death starts to show up to us. Um, this most dire moment is in a way the moment of greatest realignment when the fullness of all things um, that actually held and contained and was the source and the wellspring of our life that's when we know it most clearly and so the ascent begins and Dante the poet describes what happened next um, Dante the pilgrim first of all is picked up by Virgil he says he clasped his neck neck and Virgil waited for the six wings to move away so that they could move right towards Lucifer's side and they clung to his shaggy fur and they, they climbed down through a gap in the side of Lucifer's body and the ice. It, it's so remarkable this moment that it's by following this path all the way right to um, the emptiness itself which becomes the turning point. Um, this is what Dante is communicating to us. And I think Dante himself, you know, it's, he's still too fresh with it all. It's still too raw. He literally has to cling to Virgil. Um, but you might say this also has spiritual meaning because it's about trusting. It's about having faith. Um, it's about gathering what you'd learnt in the less dire moments, which in Dante's case is to follow Virgil. Um, when you you that now can draw on that in the dire moments and, as a word, just step into the darkness um, following um, that faith uh, with that trust that you've built up um, in earlier parts of the descent. Hold tight 
Virgil says to Dante the Pilgrim, which of course is a literal and a spiritual instruction to keep close to you that which you have seen, that which you have understood and learnt to trust, because it will be your guide now. And it's hard work. Um, Dante the poet stresses that Virgil had to work with everything he had to clamber down through the ice with, um, Dan with Dante um, clinging to his neck. Um, it's as if in every moment he not only had to work physically, but he had to work spiritually to keep close to that which he knew, to keep choosing light and divinity and ascent and trust and openness, not the emptiness which they're now just beginning to withdraw from. In psychotherapy it's sometimes called enantiodromia, from the Greek word meaning turnaround. Um, and it can be surprisingly subtle, even as if it, even as it is utterly definitive. Um, it's the moment when the client suddenly realises that all their inner feelings are actually guides, not just the random churnings of their body. It's the moment when you realise that the imagination, um, with its fantasies, with its different images, its different feelings and colour, needs to be discerned for sure, but actually itself is the way, is the path towards all colour, understanding and sight. Um, it happens in slight ways at first, but they turn out to be utterly definitive. And sure enough, as Dante and Virgil now climb down the side of Lucifer, through the ice, they enter a kind of antechamber. And Dante the Pilgrim says he's really shocked. Um, for one thing, he now sees Lucifer's feet pointing out of the ground, whereas previously they'd seen Lucifer's body pointing up from the ground like the windmill. It reminds us readers of the Simoniacs, um, whose legs are pointed out of the holes in the ground. Um, and Dante says to Virgil, you know, why is that? And then he notices the ice is gone. Um, and he said, I thought we were climbing down, whereas now we seem to be climbing up. And Virgil explains that they've passed through the centre of all things. Um, in the imaginative geography of the Divine Comedy, it's the centre of the earth. So now they're moving away from the gravitational heart of all things. And they're now on the southern hemisphere of the globe. Um, and so it's no longer night, it's become day. Um, Satan's feet are no longer pointing down, they're pointing up. Um, it's a very magical moment. Um, I think, again, not supposed to be taken completely literally, because what this is about is how the material in the literal world can channel far more significant spiritual realities. Even in the turning moment, they've begun to gather that. Dante the Pilgrim has begun to regain that capacity once more, to follow the light, even as he'd been following the darkness. And then Virgil describes the cosmic myth of the fall of Lucifer, as he understands it. Um, that Lucifer had tumbled down from heaven when he had raised his eyebrows in scorn from God, and so severed the links between him and the spring, the wellspring, the source of all life. He'd fallen down through the heavens, he'd um, come to the point of the earth, but the living material of the earth had then fled ahead of Satan, ahead of this emptiness. They'd been repelled by 
um, the deadness that was approaching it fast. And so that had created the great hole of the inferno that they'd travelled down through. It had pushed through the earth, come up onto the other side, and in fact had made the great mountain, which will be the return to God, the mountain of purgatory. It's the final, final underlining once more of this, um, this spiritual insight, this spiritual secret, that even the fall of Satan was making the way for the path back to God, descent and ascent, being deeply interlocked. It tells us something, you know, about the spiritual nature of matter, of life, and how, again, life and death are related, not because death is a kind of equal and opposite pole of life, but death is the emptiness of life, and life flees before it, but also can contain and hold it. Um, death is a detail in life, not life being a detail in death. Within this antechamber, Virgil points out that you can hear the sound of a stream, which Dante picks up, and that's going to be their pathway back to the surface again on the other side of the earth. Um, it has made its way through the deep, dark rocks and now provides a way out um, for them. And they set out, and it takes actually 24 hours for them to return to the surface, although it's described in just a few lines. Um, you know, it, it's, they just, it's description of caves and cragginess and rocks and so on, but it says that they climb and they never rest. Um, light and life is returning to them. Um, until they get close to the surface where Dante sees a hole through the rocks. Um, actually, the word that's used is like a hole that Ugolino had seen in the tower to watch the moon rising. Um, just a sort of remembrance of what had happened in that dark place, but now the darkness is bringing light back to Dante. He sees the beautiful things that the heavens hold, as he puts it. And then he says they get to the surface and we beheld once more the stars. And the inferno ends with the word stars, as indeed the purgatory and the paradise are going to end with the word stars as well. It's one of the most quietly beautiful moments in the whole of the Divine Comedy. It's a moment of pause, a moment of ease, a moment of reconnection, a moment of hope that they can see light once more. But of course, it's also the beginning of another journey picked up in the Purgatorio.